Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean and this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week Kate and I are going to be talking about gastrointestinal parasites in horses, and um, we've got a research paper that was published in 2022, and it's um, titled Parasite Dynamics in Untreated Horses Through One Calendar Year. And then we also have, I went to a seminar by Dr. Tim Ellis at Mid-Rivers Equine Center, and he gave a really enlightening presentation on updated methods in parasite control. So we're going to try and combine this and um, come up with what should be our plan? I mean, sometimes warming horses is so confusing because I think over the past 10 to 15 years, there has been huge shifts um, from equine veterinarians and different equine communities on their thoughts on parasite prevention. So it's really difficult to pick up a horse magazine or go to an equine website and you read about parasite resistance. But we've gone from 20 years ago doing rotational worming to now doing worming based on fecal egg counts. So still, though, resistance to dewormers is increasing throughout the world. And it's concerning because we really still only have three to four drugs that we use for deworming horses. There are many brand names, but there still are only three or four main types of dewormer drugs. So, and also Tim was quick to point out that um, diatomaceous earth is completely ineffective in killing gastrointestinal parasites in horses. So he's not even considering that to be a choice uh, or part of those three or four main uh, drugs. So um, it's not so much a, a matter of when these parasite resistance will show up in a region or on a farm, but it's just we have to focus more on a strategic deworming program rather than keeping with our routines that don't really take into account an individual horse's needs. Now, I was always taught to worm the herd, to not just worm one horse, but to worm the entire herd. Now they're saying um, most horses don't need to be dewormed as frequently as previously thought, but uh, you need to, um, you know, treat each horse individually and tailor the deworming program 
to each individual horse. So Kate, what did you think of this paper first? And then I'll kind of mix in some of the seminar that I went to um, because it really kind of goes hand in hand with the paper. I love parasites. I It's one <laughs> area that I don't, I don't profess to know a lot, um, but it was always an area I was really interested in in equine. And I think it is really overwhelming. Um, and I think from my own point of view, before I had more knowledge about it, I would think in my head, well, you know, we should probably just use the one that kills everything. Like that to me made the most sense. And here we use um, a drug called moxidectin. So that's in some of our, I think it's our Equest horse wormers. And moxidectin kills insisted red worm, which we're always kind of, is brought to the forefront that we've got red worm that can be treated with an ivermectin. But sometimes red worm can insist and lay dormant um, in the lining of the organ. And all of a sudden it can hatch sporadically and create an overwhelming burden and can lead to mortality. So it's kind of the one that we've been most um, fear driven uh, about, I suppose. But it's the one we have to be the most careful with because, as Nancy said, we've like three or four drugs. And it is crazy that in so many years we haven't been able to develop something else. So we are running the risk of resistance. And when we say resistance to these drugs, it's not an if that happens. It is happening. Like some horses in some regions will have that resistance. The worms they carry will have that resistance. We've seen that, and particularly like when it comes to fleas, certain drugs are no longer effective in treating fleas in dogs and cats because we've created a resistance to them. So it's a very real, very important topic. And I think it's something that horse owners probably feel a bit overwhelmed by when it comes to the different drugs. So it's great to have some practical advice, especially coming into the winter now and a drug protocol for them to go away with. But what I loved about this paper was it had so many options for testing, which I think we were always thinking fecal egg counts. But in this, they also did PCR assays. They did um, copraculture, which is like a fecal culture. Um, they did ELISA antibody tests on serum blood samples. And I had read actually, I don't know if they mention it in this paper, saliva testing, but I did read that in a subsequent paper when I was doing a little bit research around this, doing saliva testing for tapeworm. So it's all a lot more accessible to get an accurate picture of whether there's a burden there or not. And our horses can survive with a burden. I mean, I think one of the things I found that owners would sometimes confuse with worming is we're worming. I think horse owners are a bit better at understanding this, maybe, maybe just in my opinion, than dog and cat owners were, but we're worming for the burden that we perceive is there. It's not a preventative. Like once we've wormed, they will pick up worms again. We're just treating the burden that's there at the moment. Um, so I think having a little bit more knowledge around it, and particularly how this paper pointed out the seasonality that we thought was there in egg shedding, 
doesn't seem to be applicable. Um, so this paper was in Kentucky and it's really great from that point of view because previous studies were a lot of the time done in the UK and it's different climates and the seasons are slightly different in each with extremes. So to see in the U in Kentucky, in the USA, that they didn't have that seasonality of parasite egg shedding is prompting now for more research to be done in other climates and to see what the burdens are in those regions. Yeah, and as um, Dr. Ellis pointed out, that um, some of the small strongiles, um, they can safely hibernate or go inactive for up to two and a half years, and it's mm -hmm. called arrested development. Now, the problem I see with that is when they're in that arrested phase, they don't show up on a fecal egg culture. And so that's why they're saying the fecal egg culture isn't the end all. Um, you know, they really think, even though you may be getting that your horse is not a shedder, you still need to worm that horse at least twice a year, summer and um, probably spring and fall would be a good cycle, but it depends on the environment. It uh, depends on your pasture conditions. And it also depends on the temperatures and humidity because all this affects that. A life cycle that these parasites go through. And generally, the grazing horses ingest the parasitic larvae. And then, um, you know, sometimes it'll migrate or hibernate, and that causes significant damage. But in any event, that a larvae develops into an adult worm within the gastrointestinal tract. And then these adult worms reproduce and the horses pass the eggs in the manure. And then that cycle begins all over again. But it's the timing of your fecal egg count specimen that makes the difference. So I wanted to fit this in, Kate, because it's so important that you do a FEC pre-worming and then you can do um, a second one post-worming. And um, uh, fortunately, they had um, a good uh, method that you can use. So like for your fenbendazole, um, I would classify pyrantel, fenbendazole, oxybendazole. Mm -hmm. um, you can all... Um, you know, test those four to five weeks after worming. You go six to eight weeks for ivermectin and 10 to 12 weeks for moxidectin. And then those results surprisingly stay very consistent over time. So they're saying unless your horse changes in condition or um, maybe as a senior horse or gets Cushing's um, syndrome, um, you don't have to redo that. You kind of know whether your horse is a no shedder, low shedder, or high shedder. And just to put it in perspective, only 20% of horses are high shedders. 80% are low shedders. Now that's pretty, that was encouraging to me.
I think, as you were saying, Nancy, with the fembenzels and the pyrantal, there are one that we kind of use the most frequently. Um, and if we do kind of get that balance right and we just treat those high shedders, it's really interesting that that is a new approach that completely makes sense once you hear it, you know, not treating the herd anymore. But I would not have ever, of my own accord, <laughs> come to that conclusion that that's the yeah. way forward. I, I'm... I'm shocked too because I treated the herd if one got warmer they all got warmer and now I realize okay uh, let's just say you have a horse that has resistant parasites so the only way you're really going to know that is if that that uh, parasite is resistant the horse may show to be a high shedder over time so then you're treating always the high shedder but if you continue to treat the low shedders they're going to be eating the resistant parasites yeah. so the goal in on a farm or in a facility is to not under treat the high shedders and not over treat the low shedders so it made sense to me, but I really had to think about it first. And did they mention anything, <laughs> Nancy, about um, dosing for lean body weight? Yes. Um, if you use ivermectin, now this is according to Dr. Ellis, ivermectin is has a 10 times the body weight um, leeway. So the toxic amount or the amount that will make your horse sick, they give a 10 times um, wide berth for mistakes. So you're not going to have to deal with that. But moxidectin only gives you a 1.5 times leeway. So for me, I do a weight tape and those weight tapes sometimes are not that accurate. Yeah. So um, I tend to use the ivermectin, but if you have a digital scale, that's very precise. Then you can use the moxidectin, which apparently is a stronger drug because um, 10 to 12 weeks uh, is your leeway before you should test again. So those resistance, um, you know, type of capabilities then are better controlled. So it's still an uphill battle. I mean, and also if your horse has a systemic disease, um, you also should talk to your vet about what your plan is for your facility and for that individual horse, because um, I think age and uh, disease status, I mm -hmm. think that makes a big difference. And with the dosing weights as well, the reason why I asked was in practice with dogs and cats, we had started moved towards dosing for lean body weight if we had obese animals. Um, so I don't know if that's something that would be recommended in horses too. I think there's less literature out there um, for equine in this area than there is for dog and cat, but I'll have a look into that and see if we can just add it on as a little update 
uh, whether yeah. that's something we do or not. But it was when you said about the weigh tape, like we know we have some horses that are just bigger barrel horses and we have that differentiation between breeds as well. Um, I think too, um, Kate, you have to kind of take into account for that because that, you know, especially a horse with equine metabolic syndrome, mm -hmm. sometimes you've got those fat pockets that is at adiposity. And so, you know, that could be a little inaccurate when you're uh, looking to um, worm or even uh, medication prescribed for yeah. weight. You know, you've got to kind of, I think, account for that. And, and I think that's one of the, I guess, mistakes in our country that people can just buy this wormer off the shelf mm -hmm. and not really think about um, this resistance and the uh, fecal egg counts. Now, I will say um, there is a, a fecal egg count reduction test. And this is when you do that pretreatment that I talked about. And then you give the dewormer and then 10 to 14 days later, you do another fecal egg count. That's going to be pretty indicative on, uh, and you only do this on high shedders or moderate shedders. And then, um, you know, that's going to tell you if that warmer worked or mm -hmm. if they're resistant. So keep that in mind. You can do fecal egg counts um, if you're, Horse is having a health issue and the vet says, let's do a fecal egg count. Well, if you've previously given moxidectin, don't do that fecal egg count for health reasons until 10 to 12 weeks later. But if you're looking to see the amount of resistance in the parasites, you can do it 10 to 14 days later. And actually, you should have a much lower egg count if not uh, you know no egg count because that means those parasites aren't resistant and that's a great point in mm -hmm. talking to your vet about fecal egg counts Nancy yeah. mentions that in the US you can just buy these drugs over the counter um, these are what's called POM POM VPS drugs in the UK and Ireland so you can't just buy them over the counter it needs to be a vet a pharmacist or a suitably qualified person that gives it to you a suitably qualified person is someone who's actually done training in this area and they have to pass an exam so that's SQPs suitably qualified people that's licensed in the UK so there's more control over these drugs being handed out Either way, even if you can buy them over the counter in the country you're in, your vet will let you know what a good protocol is. And you can always ring up wherever you're based. You can call the vets and just ask, you know, could they let you know what the worming protocol is? That's not, I mean, to my knowledge, that's not going to cost you anything. I would be shocked if you were charged for that kind of information. And um, I certainly know over here it wouldn't cost you anything to do that. So reach out to your vet like they are there for preventative health as well. They're not just there for when the horse is sick or when something's wrong. They want to help you put those building blocks in place to keep them healthy. Yeah. And I wanted to add about the paper. Um, it's really interesting that 18 mares 
that they uh, tested this on, they had been on that pasture since 1979 and um, never wormed. So it was a great experiment, low numbers for it just being 18 as a sample size. But, um, you know, these mares, they, there's the parasites uh, did not show resistance. There were no warming warmers used. So it's kind of a unique paper. You have very few horses that could be on a pasture that long and never get wormed. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, I was really, that's why I kind of picked that paper because I, uh, you know, there's not a lot of updated information on the wormers. So in worming, there's a lot of studies. Most of them are done in the UK. So this one being in Kentucky was really um, interesting. And then uh, what they found um, was very interesting too. And it is open access, so everyone can have a read. But I was interested in, I know the other ways of detecting the parasites were interesting, like Kate said, but um, the fecal A counts, they're just not sensitive enough. And the way we rely on them, um, you know, I think it, it is makes much more sense to realize if your horse is a low or high shedder and then approach your deworming program from that and make sure all your horses are wormed at least twice a year. I The only other thing from this paper that stood out to me was just the antibodies that they do build up against the worms and that that starts from 20 weeks of age in foals. So it's really quite impressive. Obviously, when we look at this herd where they were on the one pasture for that long and never wormed, they obviously built antibodies around that too to be able to cope with those burdens. And then some being high shedders and some being low shedders is a really interesting genetic aspect to it um, that would definitely need some more research as well. The only other thing I was actually going to ask, Nancy, was you mentioned um, diatomaceous earth, and that is something I'd never heard of before. So I had a quick Google, and I don't think, maybe it's just me, but I don't think I've ever seen this. Yeah, I think they harvest it out west in the United States, like Idaho or, um, you know, one of those western states. And I tell you what, I have used it for um, thrush because it's like a powder and it's safe and it's not abrasive to a hoof. And you can mix it with some copper blue sulfate. Um, you know, and kind of make a nice um, hoof cleaner out of it. But some, I did not even know that some people felt like if they fed that, it would keep their worm burden lower in their horse. And, um, you know, that that's not true. I mean, it, there's been studies done that says, no, it really doesn't affect anything. In fact, it can change the pH in, in the equine gut to be a little bit more of a buffer. So some yeah, it's got some fiber in it as well. Because I was thinking that when you said they were feeding it and I looked yep. it up, the, I mean, people can take this too as a supplement, apparently great for lowering <laughs> cholesterol. But 
the <laughs> the fiber in it. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Should we be mixing that in? Because they need that long grain. Um, so yeah, it's from a nutrition point of view, it's interesting how you would safely supplement that. Some people think it's good for ulcers, but I don't think there's any um, research or evidence that supports that. And it's cheap. You can get it, um, you know, in a farm store. I think you can get like 30 pounds for for very little. But um, the only thing I have ever used it for is in my hoof packing that I make. And, um, you know, just to kind of um, take up some of the, um, you know, I guess if a horse has thrush, they've got that anaerobic bacteria, and it will kind of change the pH in that hoof. Yeah. You know, that's the only time. And, and it does seem to be a pretty good thrush buster if you're looking for something that's not caustic. Apparently, my last point on my newly found <laughs> interest. In <this. laughs> Apparently, you should wear a mask when using it, though, because it's really not good to breathe in that silica. It's just like um, when you, you know, I don't get huge bags I get just like a little jar of it and it will last you probably the life of your horse because you use very little but um, it's like flour so you definitely don't want that to be airborne and you breathing it in yep interesting I learned something new during the podcast normally it's before the podcast when I'm picking these things up it was so funny because he mentioned it and I said, oh, my God, I never even thought about that being a parasite um, weapon, you know, and yeah. he was it does not work. So he must come across it very all often the time. I mean, it's it. my utter pet peeve. Well, one of them in practice when people would come in and their animal would be ridden with fleas and they would say, oh, but I used a flea treatment from the supermarket it's like well here is the evidence that that does not work (laughs) you know if you look at the back of those packets and it says it has eucalyptus as the main ingredient that's not going to treat fleas on your pet so (laughs) using these like herbal treatments i understand to a degree we can treat things holistically but when it comes to parasites we need to kill parasites and not allow a burden to damage organs or weaken immune systems. We do have the ability to treat them. And I do really like this protocol of twice a year and not overworming and not overusing of these drugs And because also they are chemicals at the same time and we don't need to be giving our horses as much as we are. So I think moving forward, it's great that we can do more testing and we can reduce the amount of drugs that we're giving to the horse. Yeah, and I think one more thing he said that I never thought of before is that um, sometimes tapeworms, they don't show up in the um, fecal egg count under the microscope. I had one show up once and it looked like the letter D um, the cell did. And uh, that's highly unusual and also pinworms will not show up. So he said you can take a piece of scotch tape, press it on the horse's hind end, 
you know, right there on their rectum and then take it and put it up, put it on a slide, put it under a microscope and you'll see the pinworms. Yeah. So I, I was not aware of that because I don't really have any horses that itch their tails a whole lot. And, but I've seen young horses with that tail hair sticking up and, and they're real itchy. And I thought, what a, you know, that's a good thing to know is to take that tape sample, get it on a slide and have a look at it or get it to your vet. And then, um, you know, you do have to worm for those. Instead of just assuming it's a skin or a sweet itch or yeah. that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. So anyway, I'll ju I just wanted to end on that now. I will put the link to the paper, which is really a good read. Um, there was a lot of information that coincided with um, Dr. Ellis's seminar. And then I'll also put kind of a little summary of the seminar on the homepage for everyone to have a look at. If we can all get on the same page with this parasite resistance, maybe we can uh, keep it from getting worse and worse. And it's throughout the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. it's a great, a great topic. If anyone has any questions, feel free to drop us a message. And um, coming up, we've got some interesting episodes over the next couple of weeks. Yep. And uh, we have uh, Esther, thank you for your um, message that you uh, wanted to look into bareback riding versus using a saddle. And if there's any research on pros and cons of that. So um, I'm going to have a look into that and, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to do an episode on that. Brilliant. So okay. until next time, thanks so much, Nancy. Okay, thank you, Kate. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.